Hi, everyone. Helping parents heal. Assist bereaved parents in very significant ways. It provides personal and specialized support, tips and tools for finding hope for those parents whose children have passed. It offers much needed peer support, which aids in the healing process, going a step beyond other groups because it supports the open discussion of spiritual experiences and evidence for the afterlife in a non-dogmatic way. Everyone is welcome, regardless of religious or non-religious background, allowing for open dialogues for those to wish, who wish to share their personal afterlife communications. I'm truly both delighted and honored to have been asked to introduce some of the enlightened presenters who are at this conference. These insights provide uplifting interviews comprising a special new series on grief and rebirth podcast that will illumine the wondrous healing work of helping parents heal. The organization's sole mission is to help other parents who have also lost their precious children, ensuring them that they need not walk alone through their profound grief. Thank you. Welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. I'm so honored today to have William Peters, who has a Master of Education, and he also has a Master of Family Therapy. He is the founder of the Shared Crossing Project, whose mission is to positively transform relationships to death and dying through education and raising awareness about shared crossings and their healing benefits. As the director of the Shared Crossing Research Initiative, William and his team collect and study extraordinary end-of-life experiences called Shared Crossings. A global leader in shared death studies and end-of-life phenomenon, he has developed methods to facilitate the shared death experience and to assist experiencers in meaningfully integrating their experiences. He is a psychotherapist at the Family Therapy Institute of Santa Barbara. He specializes in end-of-life counseling as a means towards psycho-spiritual evolution, and he has served as a hospice worker with Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. William's work is informed by his two near-death experiences and a variety of shared crossings, which I'm so eager to hear about today. His best-selling book is titled At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. I'm looking forward to talking with William about what is a shared death experience and how it lessens the pain of grief, how shared death experiences can help us to die well and live better, and so much more for what is surely going to be an enlightening and very uplifting interview. William? A heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Thank you, Irene. It's such really a good pleasure to, to have you. Thank you. So let's start. Um, let's talk about your two near-death experiences. When did they happen? How old were you? What did you learn? How did they change your life? Oh, man. Yeah, so hear. my first NDE, near-death experience, occurred when I was 17 years old. I was living a kind of normal suburban life and went up skiing uh, in between uh, Christmas and New Year's. 
and was with some friends, took a what thought to be a, a relatively routine um, fall. I mean, I was going pretty quick, but my bindings did not release when I uh, hit the snow, when I hit the slope. And my back uh, took the brunt of the fall, and I fractured my spine oh, severely. Oh, my gosh. And it's, my experience in that moment was everything went dark right away. And it was like, I don't know if you remember the old MASH TV right. shows when, you know, when they would get bombed and the lights would go, the energy would kind of go out of the well, operating that. theater. Yeah. That's how I look. That's, how, that's the example that's analogous here is that like everything went out, the lights, the energy, everything to leave my body. But yet I still have this observing self. So I was watching everything go dark. And I'm just like, now what? No pain. Completely. Oh, because you'd left your body. Exactly. The next thing I remember in terms of, you know, uh, phenomena we're talking about was I'm looking down at my body and I'm seeing my body on the ski slope and I'm moving away quickly and I'm accelerating, but I'm enthralled by what I'm seeing. I'm seeing, you know, beautiful Lake Tahoe because it was at Squaw Valley International Ski Center. And then I see the San Francisco Bay Area and then I see the Colorado Rockies and then continental uh, North America, and then I have a... You got a, you got a tour. I got a tour. Yeah, I'm, get, I'm looking now, I have a satellite view of planet Earth. All the time this is going on, I am just kind of comfortable like I've been here before. No big deal. Then I see the life review spinning in my mind. All the events of my life in the first 17 years just clicking in front of me. But it was more than just a movie. It showed me how my actions impacted other people. Oh. It was a lesson in karma, sure cause was. and effect. And, and little things like when I was six or seven years old and I'd you know, been mean to somebody, maybe, you know, I remember I, we used to drive around on big wheels and I crashed into one of my neighbors in his big wheel and, and then he hurt himself and he ran in and he told his mother how Billy had been mean to him and, and he was all upset and then she got all upset and then she got upset with the husband and the husband kicked the dog. The whole thing, looking at how the karma... You see the consequences yeah. of what you do. You actually see the ripple effect of when you're not nice. That's right. That was the lesson right there. So here I am so having this life review and I'm still moving rapidly in away from planet Earth and in now into this wide tube, a kind of a ribbed white tube tunnel, if you will. But, I'm, but as I'm seeing through this tube, there's a beautiful solar system, a hyper-alive galaxy with stars and planets kind of moving somewhat close. And I'm just like, just totally enjoying this. Like mesmerized. Mesmerized, captivated. Then I see in the distance, the light, like just a little bit of a light in the distance. And I realize, bam, I'm dying. And at that point, I realized, and I've been here hundreds, if not thousands of times before, and something just emerged right inside of me. I don't want to die. And I don't want to die because I did not complete what I came to this incarnation to do. Did you know at that moment what you came to do? I had no well, idea. you knew you didn't complete I, something. That's exactly right. I knew that I had, had not completed what I incarnated to do, but I had no idea what I was supposed to do here. And so I started pleading, you know, I grew up Catholic, so I'm on this light, I'm like, this is God. I'm not even thinking, God, don't let me die. I have to go back. You have to let me go back. Now I'm thinking, as I'm telling this story, I've told it a number of times, 
how would I even know that, that I could even go back? I mean, I, didn't, I, don't, I knew a lot that I was speaking from a fair amount of knowledge. I didn't even know why. It was very impulsive, right, reactionary. And, and in addition, you didn't really think about the fact that if you go back, you're going to be in a heck of a lot of pain. <laughs> you're yeah. coming back into your body. You got that right. And, and that I'll get to in a moment. Because when I went into the light fully, I was completely at peace, just you know, feeling sublime feelings that I've never felt before, yet I still wanted to go back. But my pleading was a lot lighter. It's like, you know, if I have to stay here, it's not going to be so bad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so this isn't so bad. Yeah. But I then felt a push on me. I started moving back. And I said, thank you, God. And then a couple moments later, I heard, you know, telepathically, make something of your life. Wow. Yeah. Make something of your life. Wow. I can so relate. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do with that. But my attention then turned to, how am I going to get back in that body? And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. There's a big, there's a pull here. There's an there's a electrical kind of current I'm riding here. And I could, it had like a hum, a buzz to it. Eventually, I go back in my body. But I have no feeling in my body. It's like a thud. Into my you were like paralyzed, right? Well, I, I was. I had no feeling at that point, none. And I said, God, don't let me be paralyzed. And then all of a sudden, I felt, uh, you know, ripples of warmth, like being under a warm shower, that the, kind of the warmth across your body. I felt the energy come across, come across my body. And I said, thank you, God. And then my friend came up to me and sprayed me. Who I'm, I was skiing with them. And he goes, dude, that was a wipeout. And I'm thinking... And I'm back. And you don't know, and your back was okay. No, I did not. I got up and I was in a lot of pain, but I was in shock. And being 17 years old, I skied down the mountain, oh. which was really not smart. Uh, the next day I woke up, I stopped skiing at that point. The next day I woke up and I couldn't move, could not move. As it turns out, I was, as my orthopedic uh, doctor said, who was a neighbor, good friend of the family, he said, you know, you were one thirty-second of an inch away from being a paraplegic. And uh, he said, don't let anyone do surgery on you. You're going to be in pain for a long time. I'm going to put you in a corset. Uh, but don't let anyone do surgery on you because the data says that it, it, 10 not years good. from now. And you were young. So the odds yeah. were that you, you're, you were going to be able to heal. If that's, what the, yeah, that's what the hope was. But you already brought this up. The, the chronic pain that I've lived with since that time, which is now, you know, almost four decades ago. You still have it. I'm much, much better, but there were many times, there were you know, decades when I could not walk, I could not sit, I could not, you know, I didn't, see, I didn't sit in a movie theater for 30 years. Um, it, you know, it was, it was very, really debilitating. Wow, did you wear a brace all the time? On again, off again, it was just kind of trial wow. and error, not much really working. Um, but that was my first near-death experience. And then that wasn't enough for you. You had another one. Yeah, well, I didn't even think about that experience. So I, I literally didn't even think about it until I was channel surfing uh, at, my, at my parents' house one evening late at night. And I hear some movie star talk about this rib tunnel and a light. And I'm going through it really quickly. You know, I get channel surfing. He goes, rib tunnel and light. And it's got some woo-woo music in the background. I go, like, rib tunnel light. I think I know something about that. Went back and go, that's a near-death experience. So he was talking about that. And I'm like, wow, that's what I had. And that was 10 years after the accident. So, so then you're 27. Yeah, about, yeah, probably 
24 to 27, that area somewhere. Yeah. I can't, I don't really remember exactly when. Um, but even at that point, I didn't do much with it. I mean, none of my friends were talking about near-death experiences. So, but I had a second one. You're right. What was that about? Uh, that was... And how old were you with that one? I was, that was 1992, so I'd be 30 years old, yeah. So I was 30 years old, and... I contracted a, what they call uh, idiopathic thromocytopenia. It's a you very get fancy. Yeah, that's a, that's a big word. I, I know it well because I had to look it up many times. Uh, it's a platelet, low platelet condition. It's basically crashing platelets. So the the problem you have with uh, they call ITP is that you become a hemophiliac. You can't clot. So they were, had me on infusions of uh, gamma. Is it like in a form of leukemia or? It's, it's a relative, or a... well, leukemia is more in a um, you know kind of a, a kind of a cancer of sorts, from my understanding. This was just like, like they don't know what's causing your platelets to collapse or just to, to go down to a level that you bruise easy, you don't clot. You're, you know, when I was in the hospital, I had a fall alert. You know, like they they were keeping me in like almost a padded room. You know, wow. So uh, and it took me a number of years to get over that. So now that was, so what happened with that? Yeah. So when I had that, I went into the ER um, and then I was in the, then I woke up in the ICU, but I woke up on the ceiling of the ICU. So I'm looking down at the nurses. Getting another tour. Getting another tour. <laughs> yeah. But keep in mind, I stayed very much in the human realm on this one. So, you know, and I'm listening to the nurses talk and, and I'm, once again, totally comfortable. Like, just like, you know, I am, I am, a, I am an e observing consciousness without any identity to self. Like, I, I didn't even know I was in the hospital. So here I am there, and I'm listening to the nurses talk, and they describe, you know, this guy in bed number one who's got a stroke, and bed number two is an elderly woman who's not doing so well. Bed number three is this young guy, really pretty good health, um, we don't even really know why he's here. He contracted idiopathic thromocytopenia. And I go, that's curious. I go over, look, you know, and I'm like, hey, that's me. That's, that's me. And, and I go, okay. I didn't really hang out there very much longer. I started, I said, I didn't even go back into the body. I just started cruising around some more on the 10th floor. So, uh, but that experience was very central to my own, you know, psycho-spiritual evolution because... It was at that point, because I was out of my body for a long period of time and moving around. Now, they didn't realize that you were like... They had no dead. idea. They're like looking at this body, but they didn't know it was no longer inhabited by... <laughs> they didn't seem to... Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you a story. The doctor uh, came over from UCSF. Oh, he was a Kaiser doctor. I was in Kaiser. Right. But he was also from UCSF, but he, he introduced him as a, he introduced himself at four o'clock in the morning as one of the world's leading specialists in idiopathic thromocytopenia, which to me was like, okay, but I'm listening to him from above. So I'm looking at the top of his head. I'm seeing my face, eyes closed in the bed and, and you know, in the hospital bed. And I realize he's asking me a question. Mr. Peters, Mr. Peters, may I talk to you, Mr. Peters? And I'm thinking, do I, how, how am I going to answer him? How am I going to do this? And so I just thought, I'll, I'll respond. And when I did, I went right back into my body. And as I did that, my view changed from looking at him from above 
And then now I was looking up at his eyes and I could see right into his eyes. And that was a really interesting uh, wow. switch of perspective very quickly. And, uh, and he, then he told me a few things about my condition and that was it. And then later, I think I, dropped, I, I left again. I'm pretty sure I left Now, again. did all of this motivate you to go into therapy and, and get all this education? Like, because before I get to ask yeah. you what put you on the path to the shared crossings, you had yeah. this whole other experience. So, Well, there was an experience in between my first NDE and my second NDE. And, and this is how you get, you know, these experiences, as you know, move you in ways uh, that are unconscious. Mm -hmm. So... I just, I was in a great deal of pain and I just was no longer relating to the culture of my youth. I was struggling with my identity. I don't know who I was. I used to be an athlete. Now I could barely walk. The friends that I used to hang out with, which are able-bodied, healthy people, I kind of hung out, but right. I was kind of an imposter. And I was just had this inner reflection going on about who am I really? What's a meaningful life now? I can't, I can't do the things the rest of the people do. Uh, I can't even sit in a, in a, and have a corporate job. I mean, I, there's, there's no way. And so I decided that I had an experience actually in Yugoslavia, which was Yugoslavia at the time, now it's Bosnia. In Europe, I was traveling and I went behind the Iron Curtain and I remember waking up over an overnight bus ride from Greece heading up to Dubrovnik and seeing Muslim women with the burqas on, only their eyes. First thing I woke up in the morning, very, very poor part of Bosnia. I don't even know really where it was. But I could see these uh, women begging for food. We were a bus coming in. The presumption, I think, was that we had money because we were on this bus. And I had just woken up. And I was just like, to wake up and just go, open, pull the sash on the, on the blinds. And something just pierced my heart in that moment. Here are people who are really owning their vulnerability. Here are people who are expressing need help. And that struck me very deeply because I had the, a, a similar need, desire for help, vulnerability, scared, helpless in a certain right, way. Right, you related to them. I related to them. And, they, and, and on that moment, in that moment, I said, I need to be with people like this. I need people like this. To, to, I need to learn from them. It also was going to take your focus off of yourself. Well, and you're right about that. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something very healing about that, yes, too. Yes, when you help other people. It's yeah. So I signed up um, to work for the Jesuit International Volunteer Corps. I grew up Catholic. They gave me a job in the Jesuit missions. It was just social work, working with refugees. I was working in Peru, and there were, there were, there's a civil war going on. And so I have this, all this exposure to uh, indigenous culture, for one, we were working with the Aymara Indian people who had been removed wow. from their land. And, and I was having a really beautiful experience. I was still in pain. But, you know, as you said, when you're helping others, you're, my pain got less. Their pain, they're, they're dealing with starvation and disease and famine and dislocation and all sorts of things. It makes it, makes it almost look like what you're doing is easy. Yeah. It was, I was in a great deal of pain, but right. they were in pain too. And it was like, hey, I can relate to this. Right. I can relate to that better than I could re relate to my, you know, um, my yuppie uh, colleagues that I went to college with, which is great. They had a path that it was working for them, but I couldn't relate to that anymore. It wasn't feasible for me. So I, I had that experience. I also came back to San Francisco, went back when I returned from Peru. 
I was in San Francisco and I took a job as a social worker because I was hired because I was fluent in Spanish. I wanted to work more, kind of continue working with, um, you know, the disenfranchised of our world. And I was able to get this job. I was studying systematic theology and philosophy at UC Berkeley because I was trying to figure out what you were going to do. Well, yeah, what I was going to do and make sense of this experience. You know, I was working with the Catholic Church and making sense of all of this theologically, philosophically, because it was a profound experience to be living in, the, in Peru during that time. And I was also in Guatemala as well. Wow. So long story short, I go to get a job in doing social work. I'm fluent in Spanish, which is why they hired me, because there's all these immigrants coming over from the Mexican border. But what happens is the AIDS epidemic breaks out in San Francisco. And I find myself now at the bedside of many, primarily, you know, gay men dying of AIDS. And here I am once again, just like, wow, what suffering, what pain, what trauma uh, that the caregivers are getting. Because in those days, dying of AIDS with, you know, carposa sarcoma, this is, these are ugly deaths. And, and here I am there bringing food and you know, support. And I just felt blessed to be there because there was something very beautiful happening about this. Um, about the way the community was coming together around, you know, at, at the community, a lot of the, the men were helping each other and they all knew they, they had numbers. It was just a matter of time for almost everyone there. So I was very um, moved by that work and the courage that was exhibited every day. And it was there also that I heard about the first shared crossings. So let's segue right yes. to that. So tell us about that. Yes. And that started you on this whole journey, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Okay. I, I, it was there that um, I would work with the, the community, the members of this community that was helping the, the men primarily live out the last days of their life. They would come to uh, the St. Anthony's Foundation while I was working for food. We had a really good food pantry and also for counseling services and mental health support. And I developed relationships like, you know, support for these various communities. And one particular person, one person, Brad, would come in regularly, and he one time showed up early in the morning before I was, just as I was starting uh, my shift. He was at the door when I came in. I said, Brad, what's up? He goes, I go, he looked beleaguered, and I go, I was more like, Brad, what happened? And he goes, well, Randy died last night. I go, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But you, I'm imagining there's some relief because he'd been suffering for a while. He goes... There was relief, he says, but I have to tell you, it was a beautiful experience. Oh, wow. I'm getting a chill. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I said, beautiful experience, tell me. Well, then he proceeds to tell me that the community of men in this, in this homeless encampment in, in now, what is now, in those days, it was uh, south of Market, a very poor part of San Francisco. Now it's quite nice, actually. But he... he he says we're all we're gathered around him. We had a campfire, and all of a sudden, Brad, excuse me, Randy rises out of his body. And he saw that. And he sees them rise up, and he says we're circled around him, and everybody is taking their casting their eyes up. He, and I said, so everybody saw this. He goes, he says, yeah, the people I was, you know, that my brothers were looking at, we were looking up, and then he stopped at the top. Um, and I should say, he said he was going up a cylinder of light. And Brad said, 
you know, I thought the light was coming from the fire because we had a little campfire, you know, so we could see. He said, but then I realized the light was coming down from above. It was a cylinder of light he was traveling up. And then he stopped. He said, Randy looked down to the saw, and Randy now was young, healthy, vibrant, happy, out of pain. And he bowed and said, thank you. What a blessing to, for them, too. What a blessing. What oh, a blessing. my gosh. So, so that was my first uh, hearing of a, of a shared death experience. And, and I, I actually was so taken by that that I asked uh, Brad to take me to his community, which he did. And I went over there, and I talked to a few people, you know, and I, I remember two together said, hey, I heard about this experience. And, and two of them looked over at Brad as if to say, can I, are we allowed to share this? I mean, should we be talking about this? Um, they're already squatters, you know, so they're already thinking like, you know, do, do we want to even talk about it? Do we want to run a risk? Is there something going on down here? And, um, and, and Brad said, yeah, you, you can just say a few words. They didn't say very much. They just acknowledged that this experience happened. It sounds like this was the opening to the beginning of your life purpose. I think you're right. Like the message that you got from that yeah. first near-death experience. Absolutely. This is how you were led to that. I think, you're, I think yeah, that's, uh, that's the way I see it, too. Right, right. Yeah. So now you've, got, um, you've also had two other near-death experiences? Well, I've had many others since then, but I had one other formative one that happened when I worked at Zen Hospice. Uh, so, you know, after St. Anthony's Foundation, and I did a few other, you know, I got some more graduate work and then came back and I was training to be a psychotherapist. And I said, you know, I said, I've always really been interested in death and dying uh, for obvious reasons, you know. Yeah. And, and, and so I took a job with the Zen Hospice Project. I, I developed a mindfulness practice in the Buddhist tradition, more to deal with my chronic pain because it was a real good practice to allow me to settle into my body, to let the pain go, to realize that it does indeed modulate and I have some modicum of management of that, if you will. So I, so I, I took a position as a volunteer at the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. And then one afternoon, here I am reading a, a book, as I did every uh, afternoon that I work with this particular patient who we'll call Ron, and he was very close to death. He was uh, unconscious or unresponsive, as we say, but in hospice we know that the last sense door to close down is hearing. So we always assume that they can hear us, uh, even though they're not giving us any feedback of acknowledging the conversation. So I'm reading him a book. I still remember the book. It was Jack London's Call of the Wild. And as I'm reading... I pop out of my body, and I look down at my body, and I see Ron's body, very unresponsive, prone, and I'm like, oh, I'm a little bit taken back. Yeah, well, I mean, you're out of your body. Yeah, I'm out of my body, but I'm also, at the same time, I'm like, I've been here before, but I don't, I'm, not really, I'm not really making sense. I'm just, not, I'm just not panicking, let's put it that way. So, but then I look to my right, and there's Ron, and Ron's got this big smile big face. All I can really remember seeing is his, his head with smiles, his teeth big, and he's saying, check this out, William, as if to say to me, this is where I've been. And I just, and we just communicated telepathically. He was definitely in the driver's seat. I was more like a guest of sorts. He was giving you a little, another tour. Yeah, another tour. <laughs> yeah, just another tour. I think that works. I just like, here I am. Thought you'd like to know. And Sometime later, I went back into my body. I don't even think I stopped reading. 
Uh, and, and that was it. But the important thing about this, Irene, is I went to go talk to the supervisor of our, of our ward here. Uh, and his name was Eric. He was a veteran of hospice and a wonderful man. I said to Eric, Eric, I just had this experience. I felt I was above my body and I was looking down at my body. And I got to tell you, Ron was right next to me up there. And Eric says, a lot of things can happen here, you know, halfway between heaven and hell. Uh, halfway between heaven and earth, excuse me, halfway between heaven and earth. Well, they're going through hell with their pain or whatever, but... <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, because it's, yeah. And so, um, and, but he didn't make much of it. And the reason I share this is because here we are at the most advanced hospice, one of the most leading edge, consciously aware hospice, no knowledge of this shared death experience. And so I should probably give a definition of the shared death Please experience. Please do. Yeah. Please do. So the shared death experience occurs when somebody dies and a caregiver loved one or healthcare provider expresses that they shared in the journey from this human existence into an afterlife. And they're part of the journey, either sensing it, feeling it, observing it, sometimes accompanying the dying and moving along in the journey. And a key um, feature of this shared death experience is journey. There's movement. And that's important to distinguish from other end-of-life phenomena, which I also dis, uh, so study. So distinguish, tell us. So other phenomena would be things like pre-death uh, visions or visitations. Those are happen when the dying seems to be in conversation with uh, their deceased relatives on the other side. You're also you hear here. about that a lot. I hear it's really common. You know, they're gesticulating, they're talking, but they're also have a bit of a bubble around them. Like, the, you know, those of us, you know, who are still fully in the earth realm are like, Hey, mom. And they may not even hear us. Or if they do, you're going to interrupt the conversation. So point being is these conversations are going on, but there's no movement in these. There's no journey going on. Okay. You can also have similar conversations, which we call post-death visions or visitations. Those come from our deceased relatives who come down. They're usually, you know, the most common description is, my mom, I assume she was died, and she comes back, and she sits at the foot of the bed or up in the corner, and you're looking at them, and they're there. They're not on a journey. They're coming for a visit. They look just like themselves, usually younger. They usually come back and look. We're all going to come back looking better. They do. They always, that's, that's, that's one of the features. That's one of the things we use to determine it. How did they look? Were they younger? Were they more healthy? They go, yeah, they look really healthy. And so that tells us that we're talking about that uh, post death, vision, or visitation, rather than just another type of dream. Um, so these are distinctions. We have a real good algorithm for discerning these. But the difference here, once again, between the shared death experience and these other visitations, there's no movement. The person is visiting from the other realm. They're there. They, may, they, usually, say, they usually say something like this. Hi. As you can see, I'm fine. Just came back to tell you I'm doing really well. I love you. I'm still with you. I'm watching your life. That's it. That's it. And they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. Sometimes they have a specific message, but usually not. So as opposed to a shared death experience where there's movement, there's typically ascension. That movement is usually heading towards the light. The key phenomena that we see in the shared death experience are very similar to the near death experience. So you have phenomena like 
uh, seeing deceased loved ones. The most common uh, feature we have is that the dying, or I should say the experiencer, the shadow of the experiencer, sees the dying, sees the dying. That's, that's something you can't have in a near-death experience right. because you are the one. You're the witness. Yeah, in this one, you're in the witness. In this one, you're the witness, not the actual. Experiencer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're a shared experience, not a near-death experience. The dying is having, going through the same experience that the, that the near-death experiencer has initially. But the difference is the near-death experiencer comes back and the dying transitions fully and the shared-death experiencer gets a glimpse and observes this landscape, the phenomena. So what you see is you can also observe a life review. You can, oh, how cool. Yeah, you can, see, you can see the life review of the dying. You can have a life review of your life with the, the dying. Oh, my. In some cases, you even get your own life review. Really interesting. But there's a movement through a tunnel often. You're in a heavenly realm, a beautiful galaxy, so very much like the heavenly realms in the near-death experience. The light is often there as well, well, in the, well into the distance. The light is, you know, three out of four cases uh, in near-death experience, the light is the dominant feature. In the shared death experience, it's there often, but it's not, you know, it's not as luminous in a certain way because you, the experiencer doesn't get as close to it. You're going to come back. Well, yeah, exactly. You don't go as far into the vortex, if you will, the death vortex. Uh, but you get, a, but you, you see these elevated beings, angels, spirit guides. There's one feature I'm going to share really quick. This oh, is it's fascinating. Do. There is this being that's there. It's an elevated being. Um, can also can be called an angel. Can appear like an angel. It seems to have this role of managing the transition for the dying from the human realm into the afterlife. And I've called this role, the conductor role. They seem to be conducting the, the, the energetic, you know, movement. There's a lot of things the conductor seems to be doing. And some of the traits of the conductor is there's an urgency. There's the purposefulness. There's also a sense of grandness, bigness, strength, and power. Uh, sometimes this conductor uh, looks like an angel. Sometimes there's more than one. Sometimes there's a big one and a small one. Sometimes it looks like this conductor is training other. Now, when you had the experience, it was with Randy, right? No, not Randy. Uh, the experience, Brad, um, well, Brad, Brad, I didn't have the experience. Brad shared an experience with me about Randy's death, but okay. I didn't see it myself. Okay. When I was with Ron, I never I left that that earthly, I was at the ceiling of the human realm, if you will. I never left the, the okay. ceiling of the... Okay. Um, but I would have more of these experiences later. I've had a number of my own now. So I do know what it's like to feel the conductor. So did you have, ever have an, a repeated another new li life review when you had a shared death experience? I did. When my father died two years ago now, he'll be two years in September, he um, he'd actually died. And I was hanging out with his body. I was spending time waiting for the, the morticians to come, which is something I always do. I always encourage people when I'm, you know, working with people in their lives, say, stay with the body. Stay with the body as long as you can. Because human death transition is not as defined by medical sciences. It's a titration. It's a gradual to and from into the human body, into the next realm, back to the human body, into the spirit realm. You know, da, da. So and I know this. So I was hanging out with him, 
And I was talking to him, actually. And I actually was talking to him about some things that I had, was upset about with our relationship because we didn't have the, the closest of relationships. He's a very business-oriented man, and I went on a spiritual path. And so he never really Rest understood me. Mm-hmm. You know? And so we had that, that, that limitation in our relationship. And I was talking to him about that. And at one, as I'm talking to him at one point, all of a sudden I'm in another realm and I'm watching a movie of our life together. All the scenes I could not even remember. Like I don't have photos of them. My memory, this was not from memory. This was like, you know, we had a family home in Lake Tahoe and it was, and he was showing me different scenes. And Tahoe's kind of a key place in our life because wherever you go during your, your life, during the school year, if you will, or the normal year, uh, summertimes we always re, you know, have family reunions of the Lake Tahoe. And so I could see these year after year after year. And, and I could see he was showing me or someone was showing us that there were indeed many good times. Um, and so I was seeing the life review, seeing the challenges, the pain, the suffering of our relationship, but also the good times. So it was a real kind of invitation to see the wholeness of you a got relationship. Got the whole picture. Got the whole picture. And that was a life review, and it was really of my life, his life, and our life together. And as a therapist, that must have informed what you did a great deal. Well, that happened just two years ago. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was helpful for me to see the fullness of the life because it was definitely there to like pull me out of any overly waiting on, uh, on negativity, essentially. You know, like not seeing the fact that this was a full relationship. And there's something in it about teaching. There's something like, look how much you can learn from this. You know, and you're right. I mean, it, I, because of my family upbringing, the challenges there, as well as the gifts. Um, you know, as a therapist, I, I call upon that. We all do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, would you say that the near-death experience helps the survivor, the, the person who witnesses it in some yeah. way, with their grief and all? Thank you. Yeah, let me, let me give you the, um, you know, I should say, so, so the research institute that I direct and I'm the principal investigator for, Share across your research initiative. No, really want to learn more about that. Yeah, well, well, so the thing to know is that we, we've done the first rigorous academic studies. And so the first study we did was 167 cases with about 107 people. So what you get from that number right away is that a lot of experiencers have more than one experience, which is very interesting. There's a way in which I think these experiences groove you in a certain way have more. It opens you up. It opens you up. It creates a receptivity and, a, and a, yeah, an ability to have more. So, but when we, when we put this study together, the, the goal was to kind of validate the experience of this because all the people that came to us had very little idea of a shared death experience. Uh, they, we just defined it and they would come to us and say, you know, uh, I think I might have had one of these, blah, blah. And so we charted this. We did the rigorous research, we coded everything, and then we submitted the study to the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, one of the top medical journals in this field of, of medicine. And it was published in December of 2021, the first article ever written on this, and the reviewers were wonderful. What they said was, thank you for doing the research. We know these experiences happen, but no one has ever done the research on it. 
So this is what I feel really great it's about. It's the door for, for so much more in your life. Absolutely. And what it really does is it gives healthcare providers the platform to say to their organizations, their superiors, this experience is in the literature. We know it happens. We need to educate our patients and families about these experiences. So that's the first big piece about the research. Um, and so it's being accepted by a lot of medical people, and you're finding acceptance. About we are finding it's you know, it's, you know the medical community is, is slow slow to transform. Um, what we're finding is that the hospice workers and particular nurses who really know about these experiences are now bringing them in. It's going to be gradual, but it's it's a wonderful um, contribution, I think. And this one one thing that I'm really proud of of our organization is that we're able to do this. And and now you know you can't discount these experiences because one of the things we found in our research was about I think it was close to 39% of our interviewees uh, expressed that when they shared their experience, they felt discounted, dismissed, sometimes ridiculed, and many times in healthcare environments where they felt like they were told things like, well, you were under a lot of stress, uh, this could be grief hallucinations, when in fact the appropriate response from medical uh, staff and professionals should be, tell me more. That sounds like a very profound experience. I know something about that. That we now know that that is what they call a shared death experience, and you should know that this is a really wonderful ex uh, experience that you've been granted right. somehow. And so here are the benefits. To get, get to the question you asked yeah. initially, is that uh, our research has found that um, eighty percent of the eighty-seven percent, I should say, of the experiencers believe that their departed loved one is alive and well in a vanilla and afterlife, and that they will see them again. So, the, yes, and their anxiety and fear of death, over half, it's a low number because we didn't really ask it directly, uh, that their anxiety and around death and dying is greatly reduced, if not alleviated completely. You asked the question about grief, Anytime you lose a loved one, you're going to have heartache and despair. That's a natural, healthy response. We found that near-death, excuse me, shared-death experiencers, they're able to see this death of their loved one in a larger context. They see it as death is a natural part of life. So while they grieve fully and express their pain and anguish, they have a floor, a cushion, supports them and lets them know that, that this death is imbued with a larger sense of meaning as if to say they see that their loved one is on a journey into a benevolent afterlife and they'll see them again and so their loss is not as protracted. I would imagine it takes away from the fear of death to come. Oh absolutely it does. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Big time. Big time. Big time. Yeah. And they've got that until the afterlife which is That's tremendous. right. Yeah. So now your new book is titled The Heaven's Door. Share your journeys and teach us how to die well and live better. Yes. What would you like to tell us about that? Well, I mean, At Heaven's Door is the first uh, research-based book for the general public uh, ever. You know, it's the first one, and it is uh, comprised of 28 really breathtaking stories. I and mean, we have over we have over 150 plus stories to go for, for wow. this book, and I chose you know, 28. And 
they all kind of walk the reader gradually through a progressive understanding of the primary patterns, features, and nuances of the shared death experience. And also, I love that, that, that I, I really wanted to highlight how these experiences bring about personal transformation, primarily spiritual transformation. Talk to us about that. Well, I mean, when you see that your loved one is alive and well in another dimension, and it's good, and it's quite frankly better than here, then that changes everything. It, it recasts the way you see a human life. So many of us see a human life as the end all. We, most of us at the end of life, if we get a choice to stay or go, we're going to try and stay. We'll take all these, you know, you know. Well, the drama, that's very interesting. We get very, very involved in our drama. We do, and we, and we want to stay here. We want to play out the last acts and be as present as we can. The issue is that when you see with the people who have the shared death experiences, they become more at peace. Whether I'm here or somewhere else, I'm still here. And there's a real expansiveness to their way of seeing themselves. They're not confined by their human life. They, their life becomes imbued with a great deal more meaning. Most, many of our experiences become you know, spiritual secrets of sort. They, they get into meditation. 67% like of, our, of our experiences have now mindfulness practices of some kind, whether that's prayer or meditation or yoga or walking in nature, some sort of contemplative, reflective activity that brings meaning, depth, and introspection to their life that gives them a way of feeling more into the totality of their being, not just a material. I think they have a higher perspective. They do. I think. I, mean, I would certainly say that. You know, I'm one of these people. So you too. yeah, yeah, you are too. I am also. So yeah, it changes your whole perspective on everything that goes on. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so hard to believe, Irene, that these experiences happen. And yet, I think it's really important to know that our research tells us that everybody has, that any, anybody in hell, all walks of life. Even atheists, agnostics have them. They are typically transformed by that. I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. They definitely go through it. You know, it doesn't, doesn't happen right away. But they, as they ponder the experience, they're more... They have to process it. Yeah, they have to process it. It can take a while. But most people are very grateful for the experience. Yeah, it's wonderful. Would you tell us anything else? Would you like to tell us anything else about the Shared Crossing Project? And the research initiation, you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. Else you want to so, so we continue to do the research. Uh, we are a nonprofit, and we actually, you know, we depend on donations. And so, you know, if people are moved, you always say contact us. It's really important that we continue this research. We feel that um, that this research is going to change healthcare. It's also going to change. It's also going to empower the general public. In what way? Because, because, well, for example, Out of His Door, the, this book is, thankfully, it's being very well received, and it's getting out to people who are, you know, are mostly people who are at the end of life, quite frankly. You know, someone gets a diagnosis, and I've been told that, that you they know. They open it, they go, where am I going? Exactly, or like, you know, the local, something that was, you know, actually, you know, at a conference recently, and so, uh, a, one of the hospice workers, she works in a hospice, she's not a worker, but she's at a hospice, and she goes, we're now giving her book out, Maddie Callahan's book. 
which is, you know, Final Gifts is a great book that was, you know, talks about nearing death awareness. Well, now they're giving out my book as well because it talks about what actually happens when you begin this journey at death into an afterlife. And she said, people aren't eating it up and they're really appreciating it. It's taking the fear of death away. It's allowing for conversation. Typically, it's something you always look forward it's to like, instead of looking at it exactly. as a as a, as a period, it's a comma. That's right. There's more happening. And, and in some ways, you, it, it, uh, and the, it, it can take the mystery out of it or it creates a healthy curiosity about it. So it's causing, it's creating dialogue and conversation about death and dying, which is something that typically does not happen in our culture. We, we wait way too long. And sometimes it's it's culture. Exactly. It's taboo. And, and so, you know, so that, that, and so when I say that it's going to create cultural transformation, what I talk about is that as the general public and get their hands on it and dialogue and share it with friends, it's going to be a bottom-up change. In other words, they're going to come into their hospitals to their doctors and say, I want this experience. I've got terminal cancer, I'm dying, I want my my family to come with me to the afterlife. I want to show them my life. So can you program, so you're teaching people that they can actually program that? Yeah, so, so let me tell you about so that. So you get to choose? Well, you, I mean, that one, no, I don't want them to participate <laughs> in that. This one, I want with me, how does that work? So, so we have a program called the Pathway Program, and it, it teaches methods for how to have a shared and, and as we found, actually not just a shared death experience, but other shared crossings. So people tend to have a lot of visitations and visitations from the departed relatives, and usually soon after they die. So, I mean, it's all anecdotal. We're doing the, the research on this right now to see the efficacy of our programs in this regard. But anecdotally, about 80 to 90% will report some sort of shared crossing experience. Either a shared death experience at the time of death, of course, or a post-death visitation, or significant synchronicities. Now, do you meet with these people and train them? Yeah, train them. What, what to expect, what to, yep. so, how to encourage promoters? Well, so so the training takes place over three days. It's a pathway training. It starts on Friday evening and Saturday and Sunday all day. We do it online now, uh, so people can take it from around okay. the world, and we get people from around the world. I'll bet you get them. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting who shows up on these calls. Now you get these cultural perspectives, which are just beautiful. But we, the first thing we do is, I'll do it in three steps, it's you know, pretty clear. First thing is we validate that these experiences happen. And so we really lay a foundation that these experiences are real, they can happen. So, so the cognitive resistance is now declined because we have all the research. Then we take them through what I call death path. How do you prepare yourself psycho-emotionally, psycho-spiritually for a conscious, connected and loving end of life, no matter what that your That is so wonderful. Yes, that's the goal. And we're not even talking about how shared death experience just yet. We're talking about walking into a relationship with your loved ones where you can talk honestly about what you want from your death, what you regret in your life. You go for forgiveness, compassion. You work out all your unfinished business because we know and I know from working with people that if you have unfinished business, if you have, you know, regret and misgivings and, you know, with your friendly friends, that's going to keep you here. That, that, that. And it'll follow you. And well, it'll follow you too, but it's a hook that keeps you here. Whereas if you can say, essentially you work towards this, the ability to look at all the uh, key people in your life, primary relationships, and say thank you, I love you, goodbye, 
and I hope to see you again. If you can get to that point, then you, you leave your body with minimal resistance, naturally. If not, there's going to be a little bit more tension and angst and what have you. Uh, so we teach, we teach the method. We guide people through a series of guided visualizations. So you're teaching the people who are accompanying them, you're teaching them to calm down and to have more acceptance, That's right. which encourages the person dying to let go. That's correct. That's exactly right. Yes, you get it. Now, some people would say, how can you learn all this in the workshop? You don't learn it all. You learn the practices, but you leave the workshop having worked out a lot of it, depending on who you are, but you have the tools. You know, you get a little packet when you leave so that you can um, continue to do these practices. Now, then the last thing we teach is these protocols. And the protocols, uh, the shared crossing protocols, are methods that I teach to the dying, that you take roles, we core, you know, you guide visualizations where somebody's dying and somebody is going to be the identified caregiver loved one, who's the surviving one, and we take them through a series of, of dialogues and we attune them in a certain way. So what tends to happen when you're dying, and I should say I've done this many times, now I've, I've been the experiencer who goes across the veil with them, so I, what happens is it's a huge energetic shift. Most of the time, the dying is unable to stay in contact with the surviving loved ones. And that's okay, because we teach them how to reconnect. So they're... they're you don't teach the surviving loved ones how to reconnect we with teach, the soul of we the teach, person who's dying? We teach the surviving loved ones on the earth plane here to be receptive and open and how to attune to the signs. Okay, we teach the dying one transitioning, how to realize that they've died, that they'll drop their human body, and we teach them how to reach back and call their surviving loved ones to be with them in the afterlife. That's what we teach. It takes a while, so I obviously can't do it in the interview, but, but the point being is we have a detailed, intricate process where we, we have exercises that set, set them up and depending on the type of death that they may have, we teach different protocols. Because in how they how they might have died, as, like it's different if they died from a that's right from a, a long sickness or an accident or whatever. Totally, a sudden death has a different protocol than a long drawn out, say, terminal cancer. Those are different types of death. We have different things also for dementia, but we do have people who have dementia who've had shared death experiences. I'll bet because we're not. The personality has a dimension of the soul. That's right. Now, the consciousness is fully healthy within that, the body. The, within, the brain may not be working, but the consciousness is. Wow. So tell everyone listening to us how yeah. to get a hold of you. Mm, thank you. How to connect with you. How to so, find your book. Yeah. So um, I, I'm, you can come to sharecrossing.com. We have a lot of resources there. One resource I would really uh, encourage your viewers to take advantage of is we have a story library. We record all of our interviews on Zoom with our interview participants. We take those recordings, which is usually an hour and a half or longer, and we you know, summarize them into like five minutes uh, of the core material. Uh, and so you can go to our website and you can watch people talk firsthand about their shared life experience. So that's sharecrossing.com, go to the story library. Uh, there's other resources there about share crossings and what have you. I will say this, um, if, if people are interested, I have a consultation group for end of life 
professionals and mental health practitioners and spiritual care providers and other people just super interested in death doulas as well who want to learn about this. We talk about, I ask people to bring their case studies in, their client cases, and we, you know, with confidentiality, I, I work with people about how to do skillful, healthy interventions, how to talk to family members, how to teach these methods, how, you know, how to integrate these spiritual experiences into uh, their lives. And so there's, there's that little group too. So, um, but the Pathways is the, one that's, is the one that's the most popular online. And you just go to sharecrossing.com, go to education, and, and it's all right there. And please answer a question for me. Yes. I would like to know, what is this, talk to us about the psycho-spiritual evolution. Yeah. I hear so much about that yes. we are ascending, all this chaos, la la la. Tell yeah. us. So, you know, I apply psycho-spiritual evolution to my work as a psychotherapist. Somebody comes to me and they're dealing with a death. Okay, they may or may not have a spiritual experience. If they don't have a spiritual experience, we have existential questions that come up. And there's primary questions that come up for somebody who's lost a loved one is, where are they? If they're gone, then I now realize that I will die at some point. In fact, everything I know and love, will, I will either die from it or it will die from me. So who am I? And if this is just a human life, what's the meaning? What does this all mean? What, what's it all about? What's it all about? It is this process that, that brings about psycho-spiritual evolution. Because psychology has to do with the development of a healthy self. A self that can handle adversity. A self that has uh, resilience. A self that can be in a world with other human beings in the natural and give and receive and do so in a meaningful way that brings meaning to them. Well, when you face a death, all of this seems to be challenged. So the psychological part is the development of self. The spiritual part of one's evolution has to do with the who am I questions. Becoming conscious. Becoming conscious, exactly. And then that then it's less of a self in a certain way. You become a consciousness that has observing capacities, but you're less egoic. You're less oriented towards me, mine, and I. So how do we together work as a human life that has to make money and provide for our family? That's, you need a strong psychological self to do that. But how do we honor these other aspects of ourselves that realize that this whole part of myself is gonna die at some point I've got to build a base in my spiritual self and consciousness. So how do you, this is the dynamic we weigh. How do we balance the reality that in our psychological self, I'm everything. In my spiritual self, not so much. I'm just a part. I'm just a part of this greater divine universe in which I'm part of it at best, but I'm certainly not all of it. It's not all about me. It's not all about me. So how do we deal with those? And and so if you have a death experience, that brings it up. But also any kind of spiritual experience, any of these shared death experiences brings that up. You're a survivor loved one. Where's my loved one now? I had this experience. I saw this beautiful, you know, cosmos. I had spirit beings come by. I was communicating with them. Never communicating. What does this all mean? Same psycho-spiritual questions. I have to live here and make a living. But and, on the other hand. But on the other hand, it's a lot more than what's going on here. In other words, this human life, is not as advertised. Right. So these are the psycho-spiritual questions that I help people with. That is fabulous. I would say you've been through a 
<laughs> I hope so. I don't know if I'm going to or something else. <laughs> I want to really thank you because you're helping people with the mystery of death. You're helping people with the transition. You're doing so much with helping parents heal, mm -hmm. helping families. You're a light. You're a light worker. There's so much appreciation for all that you do. Thank you, and thank you from my heart for this wonderful interview. It's going to help so many people and enlighten so many people. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show. So my pleasure and my honor. Thank you.